Well, as Emilio said, we, we have recently been through the book of James in Sunday school, and we did so in two months. So we covered the book really quickly, and there was just a lot of things in the book of James that didn't really get the attention that it deserved. And the passage I wanted to come back to, to really um, bring back to our minds and to remind us of the truth, is found in the very first eight verses of the book of James. So if you will, go ahead and turn there. It's going to be James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. We're really going to try to focus in on verses 5 and 6, really. Um, so I just pray that, as we've already heard this text recently, that, that it would be that the reminder there would, would cause it to stick and we'd hide this truth in our hearts. Um, th- this text here is... I think so relevant because it's going to speak to how the Christian can have joy in the midst of, its tri- uh, midst of a Christian's trials. So I know as all of us have trials, this is, this is one of the weapons that Scripture gives us to deal with the Christian walk. It is a mighty weapon here. Um, can you imagine having joy in the midst of all your trials? Um, so we'll read the text. I'll read it for us. We'll pray and then we'll dive in. James chapter 1 says this, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So let's pray for the text. Well, Father, um, in your grace, God, you, you give us moments, God, like this to sit comfortably, God, and in the air conditioning, God, in comfortable seats, to have our Bibles open with our families and to look into your word, God, and to see what you have for us. Father, and I, and I praise you, God, for the, just the opportunity that we have even now to once again look into your word, God. Um, Help us to take advantage, God. Help, uh, help your church to see what you are saying through your word, God, despite me, God. I pray that we would leave this place um, knowing how it is that we can have joy in our trials. And we ask this in, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we see here in the very first verse who James is addressing his book to. James is speaking to the tribe's who were dispersed abroad. Now these tribes are Christians who have been pushed outside of Jerusalem due to persecution. We can see this persecution in Acts chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 that really began with the stoning of Stephen. It says at the stoning of Stephen that these people were cast out of Jerusalem, these believers. And so even though this text is not Um, specifically addressed to Heritage Grace Community Church, 
we do know that this text is here for us. This text is here for our benefit, for our study, and for our sanctification. Because all of these books are not addressed to us, but they are definitely for us. And so let's get into specifically, in verse 2, what James has to say to these churches and to us as well. James is going to begin to shepherd these churches under persecution. And he's going to shepherd them with some very practical theology. In other words, what that means is James is going to teach these churches some truths about God, the way God works in our lives, and then he's also going to give us the correct response, how we're to respond to the things that God is doing in our lives. I'll just read verse 2 again. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And so as, as we know from the rest of the book, James is very aware of all the trials that these churches are going to have to go through. He knows that these churches are being persecuted, as I said, by the rich. They're being mistreated by the rich. Many are sick, we know, from the rest of James. Some are even dying. And there's much sin that's apparent in this church causing divisions. And sin always brings trials with it. The way of a sinner is hard. And being aware of this, this wide array of trials that James knows the brethren are encountering... James uses a word here in verse 2 that our NASB translates as various. He says, when you encounter various trials, and this word quite literally means multicolored. So what James is saying to these people is, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter multicolored trials, which simply means that James is using this language to, to, to speak to any amount of trial that could come, any type of trial that can come. This text right here is going to be good for as many trials as there are colors. And we know there are many. There are many. So that, this is why I think this text is so good, because it speaks to, to so many issues that we know we're going to have as Christians. As Christians, we know that um, as we're trying to live godly lives, that there's going to be the world... Um, Satan and the world are both going to try to war against us in doing God's will. And this text here is going to address all the trials that will come. I listed some that this teaching will aid the pastor who's called to work in a church where there's wayward sheep and divisions maybe where trials are coming. This teaching will also aid the wayward sheep themselves who may be going through trials as even a result of their sin. This teaching is going to be good for the Christian who may be living with an erring spouse or even an unbelieving spouse. This teaching is going to be beneficial for the parent who can't get their kids under control and feels as if they're at their wit's end with their children. This teaching will even be good for the parent who may have lost a child and even for the Christian who's sick or may be dying themselves. Any possible trial, God in his grace is giving us the answer for right here in this text. It also needs to be pointed out that this text says when you encounter various trials, not if. And so we know that trials are going to come. And so with this text, I want us to be ready. It's not, when to try, I mean, it's not if the trials come, but when they come, we need to have joy. And so let me just first address the, what our natural reactions normally are to trials. How do we normally re react to, with depression? anxiety, 
questioning of God's providence, grumbling and complaining. But how does the Spirit of God here in verse 2 say that we're to react in our trials? The Spirit of God says to us through James right here, he says, to consider it all joy. Consider it all joy. And, and this, this action here to consider it all joy is an imperative. This is very important to see that this means it's a command from the Scriptures and therefore from God himself for us to consider it all joy in our trials. This is not optional for the Christian. Now this can seem like a, a very strange command, a very difficult command to have joy in our trials. So what does this mean really? Does this mean that we're not allowed to be sad or to cry in any hardship or trial that comes upon us? Is James saying here that if when the, the boss calls you into his office and sits you down, closes the door and says, look, due to the economy, we're having to do away with your position and, and your services are no longer rendered here. We don't need you anymore. Is James saying at that point we should stand up and say, praise the Lord? I don't think so. And I have an example here, a very insightful example, I think, to help us look into what this joy looks like when hardships come and trials. And my example is Lazarus. I mean, uh, Jesus in the death of his friend Lazarus. It helps me to see how we might be able to work this out. It's from John 11, where the shortest verse in the Bible tells us that at the death of Lazarus, Jesus wept. So when this hardship came and Jesus saw the crying of his friends and the weeping of everyone that he loved, Jesus like, likewise wept. And weeping is not, uh, it's a very fitting reaction to death. It's good to weep, and it's okay to weep. Weeping is fitting because death is a result of the fall. Death is a result of sin. It's an actually unnatural state. And so it's okay to weep. But what is so good about this text, and what's so interesting, is at the same time that it says Jesus was weeping at this hardship, it says at the same time he was able to actually comfort his disciples. In, in John eleven fifteen, it says there that he was actually glad that he and his disciples were not there when Lazarus died. He told them that he was glad that it happened like this. He said that he was glad because he knew that his disciples were now going to have the opportunity to see God work. That's what made Jesus glad in the midst of this hardship. And that's the trick, and that's the, that's the secret to this verse right here. That's, that's what we have to grasp is that it was because that of the knowledge that Jesus had that God does things for a purpose. And there's a reason behind the suffering, even the suffering of death. This is what enabled Jesus to still be glad, it says, in the midst of death. And so I want us to look at the purposes that James is giving us here at why trials come. Because if we can understand why the trials come, we will not be in despair. We will not be overwhelmed. We'll know what God is doing and we'll have joy. And so now let's look at that. Let's look specifically at why J James says that we should be joyful in the midst of our trials. Because as I said, with this difficult, that as we know from experience already, this is a difficult command. And so we're going to need all the help we can get to keep it. Now I'm going I'm to read verses 2 through 4 all together this time. James says... Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. 
And now James is going to tell us just how it is that we can have joy. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so the good news is about our trials, the good news is that they're not random accidents. Our trials are not bad luck. God is doing something. He's testing our faith, it says right here. It's a test of our faith. And so our trials are necessary. Trials are necessary for our faith. In a problem-free world where everything is great, I don't know how much growth happens there. When you don't have a worry in the world and everything is fine, how is your, how is your faith necessarily going to be strengthened? Because our faith is like a muscle. It must be worked. It must be stretched. It must be used. Because when it comes back together, it grows and it's stronger and it can endure. And so that's what our trials are for. The good news, and I'm going to keep emphasizing that, the good news of our trials is that it, testing is producing something. It's producing endurance. And it takes trials to do that. And a faith which endures is what we, is what we must have. Emilio said it earlier. This is what Christ says in Matthew 24, 13. He says, only the one who endures to the end will be saved. So we must have a faith that endures. We must have a real, genuine faith that can make it through any trial, hardship, or temptation. This is what we need. And as, as verse 4 here goes on to say, that in having an enduring, strong faith, it is not just, it's not the end in itself. It doesn't stop there. The text says, let, a, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The end goal of enduring through our trials and building a strong, a strong faith is so that we'll become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now I have to address, what does James mean exactly by saying that we'll be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? Well, what James doesn't mean, of course, is that we'll reach a, a state of sinless perfectionism. What James doesn't mean is that if we maintain enough and, 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 and work our, our faith strong enough that we'll, we'll finally come to a place where we've arrived and that we'll never sin again. We, we know that James is not um, saying this because if you just flip a page, it's just one page in my Bible, if you flip over to James chapter 3, verse 2, there, James says, as he's speaking of the sin of the tongue, he says in James chapter 3, verse 2, where he admits, he says, For we all stumble in many ways. James the apostle, the, the, the great teacher and leader of the church in Jerusalem, says himself that we all stumble in many ways. So we know that James is not teaching a sinless perfectionism here. That's not what he's saying. But what James is saying is he's talking about a Christian who has gone through trials, who has had his faith worked, and has a proven faith. He's talking about a, a Christian who has a faith that can withstand temptations and can withstand trials, a faith, a faith which will not falter and allow the Christian to fall away. That's, the, that's what James means here. And so what about this goal of being a mature Christian? perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Because the question to you is this, is this genuinely a goal of yours? Is this your goal? Is this the goal of your life? Do you really want, as you look back at verses 2 through 4, is that what you want your life to be? Trials that God brings your way for your endurance? Are you willing to go through these trials that God has for you so that you'll become solid and mature? Or are you content with your place in life? Are you content and not wanting or willing for any trials to come your way? Are you hoping that your life is just going to be in perfect comfort so you can get on your red carpet and, and fly right into heaven? Is that, is that what you're looking for? Well, the goal of a genuine Christian is not just to have their ticket punched. It's not just to have their ticket punched so they can enjoy heaven one day. But a genuine, a genuine Christian desires righteousness. A genuine Christian desires to be made more like Christ at whatever the cost. And we know here that trials is part of that. There's many means of grace. We've discussed what the means of grace are before. We've made lists. The means of grace are the preaching of the word, the ordinances. Here I'm going to have to start adding trials. Trials is a means of grace to make us more Christ-like. And so I pray that we would all be willing we would all be willing, knowing the reason behind our trials, that they're not an accident, they're for our sanctification. And this is part of what Jesus meant when he said we must be willing to take up our crosses. We must be willing. Now, for those who are willing, and for those who desire to be conformed to the image of Christ, but struggle with having the joy that this text says, that this text commands us to have, for those who are willing but struggle, God in his grace gives us verse 5. And God's going to tell us what we should do if when this wave of a trial comes to us and feels as if it's coming over us and we can tell that our feet are not firm in the providence of God, our feet are not trusting in verses 2 through 4 and understanding the reasons for our trials, God's going to tell us what we should do in verse 5 here. I'll read it. It says, But if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so just as we sang, how good is our God? Our God knows where we lack. And he promises, this is a promise that he will grant us the wisdom that we need in our trials. And what a great promise that wisdom is. True and godly wisdom is priceless, literally priceless. And I'm going to read from Proverbs 16, 16, which tells us how priceless this gift of wisdom is. It says, how much better is it to get wisdom than gold? And to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. So what a blessing it is to be a child of God. What a great blessing it is that we can receive from the Lord. Not only do we have the precious, priceless gift of Christ and forgiveness of sins, but we have the gift of wisdom when we need it. Now, I want to look more specifically here at, at exactly what kind of wisdom it is that James is speaking of, because it's surely not a worldly wisdom. It's surely not a wisdom that when trials come, uh, the world would tell you to turn to drugs or turn to psychiatry or just pray that uh, karma is going to work it all, all out one day. 
Or maybe, you, hey, you just need to get another credit card. It's not a worldly wisdom, and it's not necessarily even a wisdom that's going to get you out of the trial or the, or the hard circumstance. But in context, James is speaking of a wisdom which is from God himself, and it's a wisdom that will actually allow you to grasp the truths of verses 2 through 4. It's a wisdom that if you ask God, he'll give you the understanding to grasp the truth that your trial is not an accident, that your trial is, is going to help you, it's for your good, that it's going to make you perfect and complete if you'll be faithful through it. It's the wisdom that results in one actually being able to have joy in your trials, to have joy in your trials. And in case we're hesitant about asking our holy God for his wisdom, look very closely in verse 5 here where James describes our God. He describes this God who we're to ask wisdom from. He says in verse 5, he says, Let a mask of God who gives generously to all and without reproach. I think I read that according to the NASB. Let me read it again. It says, Who gives to all generously and without reproach. And quite literally in the Greek it says, Let him ask the giving God. Showing us one of the attributes of our God is his giving, his willingness to give. It's an attribute of our God. And Jesus describes our God, the Father particularly, in the same manner in, the same manner in Matthew 7, 7. And, and it's worth turning to. I want us all to turn there. Matthew 7, 7. Jesus says the same thing about our Father there. Matthew 7, verse 7. This is what Jesus says. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If then you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And so here we have from the, li the, from the lips of Jesus himself the great love and generosity of our heavenly Father. And speaking of Jesus, what is, it, what is the most sure evidence that we have of the generosity of God and God's being willing to give? We just sung about it. It's none other than the giving of Jesus Christ himself. We should never doubt the generosity and the love that God has for us and his willingness to give to us whatever we need. The cross is the one sure evidence that God loves us and he wants to give to us. And I'm going to read how Paul says it because it's beautiful. In Romans 8.32, he says this, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? With the Son, God likewise gives us all things. So I want you to be encouraged to go to the Heavenly Father and to ask for the wisdom that you need when your trials come. Be encouraged. Yes, our God is holy, but do not fear. Because as Pastor Emilio explained, the wrath of God has been propitiated for us by Christ. We don't have to fear our, our holy God like that anymore. He's there for us and wants to give. And so we should take advantage and ask him for wisdom. 
Now James here is going to take it a step further in trying to encourage us to beseech our Father. He says here in verse 5, he says, When we ask the giving God for wisdom, he says that he will give it without reproach. This simply means that God will not hold back his wisdom from, from us due to our unworthiness. God is not going to bring up our sins to us. He's not going bring to up, bring up to us our stupidity and our lack of wisdom and our ignorance. He's not going to do that. God's waiting for us to pray, and when we pray, he's going to give. Jesus, uh, just as Christ was given for us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins and being in the unworthy state of Adam, and God gave to us in that state, why would we think that being given the righteousness of Christ that God would not at this time be willing to give to us? We know that God, is, God loves us and that he will give it to us even though we don't deserve it. When the trials come and our, and our feet are not solid on the ground, God is not surprised. God knows us, and God says, come to me. Come to me and ask me. And so knowing that our God is such a giving God, should we not do all that we can to take hold of this promise? And should we not implement this promise as much as possible, as much as we possibly can? And so with that being said, I want to hone in here on the means by which we gain this wisdom from God. How is it specifically that, that, that the text here says that we're to get this wisdom from God that we need? Well, verse 5 says, let him ask of God. So this means that the wisdom that we gain this from God is by prayer. God wants us to come to him by prayer. The reason that most of us do not have the joy that we're supposed to have when our trials come is due to a lack of prayer. It's due to a lack of wisdom. Because if we would be praying as we ought, we would have the wisdom and we'd have the resulted joy. It's a promise from God here. So we can know that if we don't have the joy, that we have not prayed enough. We do not have because we do not ask. And so I just wanted to look at maybe some practical steps which we can start to do to put this into practice. Because as, a, as I know myself and as a church, we must have this as a practice. We need this to be a habit. Our ha it needs to be a habit for us to go to God in our trials. So we do not waste our trials struggling around in the flesh. And so one way we might start to do that is just by making a very deliberate turning to the Lord in every trial, even the smallest of trials. Start making it a habit, even in the smallest of trials, to turn to God and to plead for his wisdom. I know it might seem a lot more natural and a lot easier to come to God when the trials are huge and hard and you have no other options that you know of. It's very easy to come to God at that time, um, but we must keep in mind, and this is actually the verse that I meant to refer to earlier that Emilio spoke of, we must keep in mind what Jesus said in John 15, 5. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Even the smallest of trial, we must have God. We must have God in his grace. So if we truly want to be walking in the spirit, if we truly want God to be blessing the things that we do in our life, and our ministry, at work, with everywhere that the trials come, this must be a habit for us. This asking of God in the original is in the present tense, which in Greek generally denotes that the verb is going to be an ongoing action. A.T. Robertson, a, 
a great Greek scholar agrees in this instance, that's what the, the verb is saying. It's going to be an ongoing prayer, a continuous prayer. Okay, so the question will arise then, how much time do we need to devote for our trials? How much time do I need to give, James? Well, I think just a very helpful rule of thumb would be to give our trials a correlating amount of time to them. Smaller trials, we can devote a smaller amount of prayer. Larger trials, we'll need a, a, more, a larger amount of time in prayer, a deeper prayer, maybe even a prayer with fasting, and maybe even a prayer where you call the elders to a bedside that James speaks of in very serious instances in James 5.14. So not only will there be um, the time that we have in prayer, but the intensity of our prayers will also play a part in how God is pleased with our requests. The intensity of our prayers. If you flip a couple page over to uh, James 5, um, where is it? James 5.17. In James 5.17, James describes the prayer of Elijah when Elijah requested from God for a miracle to happen. He had the sky shut up and prayed for a drought for over three years. And in 5.17, it says that Elijah prayed earnestly. He prayed earnestly. And so we see the intensity of the prayer in James being mentioned here. And so now when we do come to beseech our Lord for his wisdom, verse 6 is going to give us one more necessary component. There's another necessary component of how our prayers are to be made. In verse 6, he says, But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Our God is not honored by a lack of trust in him. And how can it be that we doubt our God anyway? How is it that we doubt our God? The God who, whose son left heaven, the God who's revealed himself throughout history, how do we doubt this God who took on flesh for us, who left the, the perfect abode which he had in heaven with the Father and came to die for us? And not just die, but die the humiliating, sin-bearing death on a cross for us. How is it that we doubt this God, the God who rose on the third day, as the Scripture said he would, as he himself said he would? This is the God that we doubt and we are indeed sinful and needy people, are we not? As the text says here in verse 6, it says, When we distrust our God, we allow every trial that comes along to toss us around. The trials toss us around in doubt and unbelief, just like the wind does out in the seas. In the same time as this is happening, we're still praying, still hoping that God's going to answer our virtually atheistic prayers. But the text says here that he will not. Read verses 7 and 8. It says, The doubting man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The doubting man will not ex should not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Not only will your prayer life be ineffectual, but your whole life will be unstable. You'll be unstable in all your ways, and that's a terrifying place to be. That's no place for the Christian to be. 
a place where you receive nothing from the Lord. It's a terrifying place. A life of merely operating the flesh. The word here for a double-minded man literally is a double-souled man. A man who's attempting to have a soul in worship of God and a soul that still loves the world and a soul that still has unbelief. That's not the life of a Christian. That's not the soul of a Christian. The Bible says that we are to be like trees planted by streams of water. We're to be bearing our fruit in all seasons, and our leaves are not to wither. This is how we should be, strong in faith. Our God is the only true God. And God, we have the scriptures, God has always delivered his people. God has always been faithful to deliver us. So why do we doubt? You know, as I think about doubt, and Pastor Emilio has really helped me with this to understand the truth that doubt is, is, a, is a horrible sin against God. Doubt should be cast out immediately, anytime it creeps up in our lives. Doubt is a sin. The gospel is a command to repent and believe. It's a command from God to believe. It's not, it's not an optional for us. We don't even have the option to doubt. It is sin. As said before, God has given us his scriptures the incarnation of the Son, the resurrection, and hear the promise of God to give us wisdom that will bring us through any trial that God brings our way if we'll pray to him in faith. And so, brothers and sisters, we should, we should take hold of this wonderful promise of Scripture. Those of us here who have been blessed with the gift of faith, we must exercise it. God has not given this gift to everyone. We should not take it for granted that we are God's elect. Not everyone can come to the Father like we can and ask for wisdom in a time of need. This is a blessing from God for us. Christ died on our behalf. Christ has gained us access to the throne of grace. The unbeliever has no such access to the throne of grace. The unbeliever has no promise from God for help in any circumstance. Look how the Proverbs say it in Proverbs 28, 9. It says this, it says, He who turns his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. So brothers and sisters, as being people of God, let us take advantage. Let us look at this, I'm going to read another contrast here from the Proverbs. Proverbs 15, 8, it says this, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. And so let us be the upright. Let us be those, who, be those who actually delight our God with our prayers. Let us do that. Let us seek God as soon as our trials come so that we may have joy. And that joy would come out and not grumbling and complaining. Let us have joy to the amazement of the onlooking world. What a light we would be to our family members when they see that we have joy in our trials. What a light our church would be to those who come in and despite all the trials that they see in our lives, that we have joy. At the end of James's letter, all the way at the very end in chapter 5, we see James start to mention some of the one another's. He talks about how we're to rebuke a brother and bring it back in. He talks about how we're to pray for one another. 
And so in the same way this text, we can implement that with, with each other's lives. When we hear a brother or a sister speaking of their trials, and maybe even grumbling and complaining, we need to take advantage of that to remind them of this text here, to remind them of the truth, that their trial is not a mistake, it's not an accident. We need to remind our brothers and sisters and comfort them with the truth of this text. Comfort them that God is actually doing a work in their life. God is trying to conform them to the image of Christ. Tell them not to waste their trials, but don't stop there. Pray for them. Pray for them that God would give them this wisdom that they need to trust in God's workings. Prayer being the, the ministry focus, if you haven't seen it up on the church's website, this is what our church needs, and this is what every church needs. But this is a great place where we can start with our trials and taking the opportunity when a trial comes up to press into God and to pray. If our church was a wise church, if our church had the wisdom to understand and really believe the things that we say and that we preach, we believe that God is sovereign over all things. It's very easy to say that. But if we could, if we could have the joy that should come from that, then people would be convinced. So having looked at all the parts here of this text, let's put it back together just by reading the text again now that we've seen all the parts. I'm going to read just starting in verse 2 all the way through the end that we looked at. It says, To consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Amen. That's all I have. Let's, let's pray. Well, Father, having given us your word, God, I pray that, God, help us to hide this into our hearts, God, so that we may not sin against you, so that we, we may not sin when the trials come and, and not have joy. God, give us the wisdom that we need. God, help us to help each other, God. Help us to help, help our spouses. Help us to direct each other, God, to have joy. God, be pleased to give our, our church wisdom. Let us be a light to the world, God, that of a place that has joy in the midst of trials. In Jesus' name, amen.